this week we'll talk about hacking your data career and we have a special guest Marian. Marian is a sociologist and a data scientist. He works at Capgemini as a data scientist manager and I think last time we had you on our event you were a senior data scientist. What comes after <laughs> senior data scientist? I don't know. So now I'm managing data scientist which is great because I get less recruitment spam now because clearly everyone just control F's senior data scientist and that's it. And I don't fall in that category anymore. So easy. <laughs> so you have probably seen Marian talking about doing good with data, for example, in our events. And yeah, in general, you probably have seen him in LinkedIn posting stuff about data, other topics, cats and other things. So welcome to our event, Marian. Thank you for having me. So before we go into our main topic of hacking the data career, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Sure thing. It starts like nine years ago. That's painful to admit. When I started out studying sociology and my dad told me, man, you're never going to get a job like that. Sociology, who does that? But what I learned during my study was, okay, predict election outcomes, uh, model Twitter data and, and discourse, how to mine social media, that kind of stuff. Because even though a lot of social science focuses on human behavior qualitatively, like interview surveys, etc., you can also do so quantitatively, which means I was modeling pandemics even before COVID was cool. I did Ebola. Good times. That one we managed to contain. And for my graduation, I was modeling how many people get stabbed in my hometown of Rotterdam and what the main neighborhood circumstances could predict uh, lower or higher numbers of stabbings and drug crime and such. And then I met Capgemini and the entire field of data science told me, man, that's cool. That's data science and AI. And I thought it was just statistics and distinctively not sexy. And I said, sure, now please give me a job. And that's how I became a data scientist. That was very short. Uh, <laughs> I got comfortable listening to your stories because uh, you have good way of telling stories. I, I can go so, on for a few more yeah, hours if you that. want me to. Not for a few hours. But the main point here, <laughs> and that's also something we're going to talk about a lot today, I think, is that I stand out in the field of data science because of my background. And that has little to do specifically with social science and more with that your background actually determines a lot of your competitive advantage in data science. It's not about knowing the same stuff as the next guy or girl. It's about what you know that they don't know. And I see tons of kids these days shitting their pants as they look at the labor market and they try to know the deep learning algorithms better than their peers. That is a tough thing to compete on. Try to compete on the things that you know that they don't know rather than the same things. That's how I got lucky. So what do you know that they don't know? Sociology. Oh, I, I did a mixture of sociology, criminology, and uh, quite some statistics. So I, I remember one of my very first projects, we were modeling the effects of gender and my computer science and AI peers, because we work in a work in a team, were like, okay, how do we test that? And I'm like, oh, checking for gender bias. I know that. I studied that crap for years. So yes, I studied bias and discrimination and algorithms for four years, was told I'd never get a job and I hit the labor market and everyone's crying about bias and algorithms. And I'm like, hey, what happened? 
in the same way. I have economists, uh, like uh, astronomists or astrologists. It's one of the two. Always mix them up. They get angry over that. Physics people. Um, this one who did psychology. All part of my team. Theoretical uh, mathematicians, too. All part of the teams I lead these days. And we all see different problems. We also see different solutions. But by screaming and arguing at each other, we find better solutions. And the opposite of that is what you see in most organizations, where their entire data science team is just 10 people who studied uh, econometrics or 10 people who did computer science. And there's nothing wrong with either study. But if you do econometrics, you're kind of stuck as soon as you have to do NLP, <laughs> to give you an example. Does it happen because of the interview process? Let's say the person who does the interview asks just what they know? That's because marketing, recruitment bottlenecks this process like crazy because we only grab the specific words that we think we need for our team. This is not a data science problem. This is an IT and the entire labor market-wide problem mm -hmm. in that we recruit based on words, not actual capability. The same reason a ton of people only recruit data engineers these days, assuming they also have data science capability because they previously just recruited everyone who said data science and figured out, then found out they couldn't do the engineering part. Meaning we're now doing the same faulty mechanism just with another word. And now we're recruiting a ton of data engineers who can't do the data science bit. Because we keep depending on VLOOKUP, basically, for our recruitment. Yeah, so you mentioned that so you need to find what you know that others don't know. So since you mentioned that, this wasn't uh, part of the questions I prepared, but maybe you can help with that. Yeah, a few days ago, I think it was yesterday, somebody in Datadocs Club asked this. So the question is, I'm trying to find the most complete curriculum for data analytics, data science, and machine learning. And each side has different things and so on. So the question goes on to find the, the perfect curriculum. While here you say that, hey, forget about all this stuff, right? So like, if you learn deep learning, then everyone else also knows deep learning. What would you advise to this person? What would you suggest to this person? Their goal is to find a data role, right? So what would be your suggestion? Striving for perfection is something you do in academics and in science. As soon as you step outside of that, you realize there's no such thing. There is no perfect model. There is only good enough. Now, do realize that data science is basically three things, statistics, programming, and a field you applied in. And to my great surprise, the field and the statistics I already studied, just like a computer scientist has programming and statistics math, up to a T. But you start with one of the three, and then you learn the second one through a minor, or, or I don't know, and the third, you, you just kind of wing. There is no perfect curriculum, mm -hmm. just like there is no consensus within science. There shouldn't be. Science agrees is a very dangerous statement to make. In the same way, your perfect curriculum at the micro level, because you can have a, have a local optimum, very much depends on the field you're coming from. Now, this uh, relates to my previous statement of don't double down on the things you don't know. Double down on the things you know that give you a competitive advantage. Sure, I try to improve my programming. I'll never be as good as a Pythonist as some of the computer scientists in my team. Also because I still prefer R, I'm sorry. Do they cut this? But that's because I don't try to compete on that stuff. And no data scientist except a few unicorns 
are complete experts on both programming and statistics, as well as, I don't know, finance or outlier detection, whatnot. You grab the part you're good at and you improve on that because that makes you a valuable asset and a valuable addition to a data science team. The only alternative is an organization where you are the only data scientist and you have to do all three, which is very educational, but also makes you lose hair. And it means you're working for an organization that really doesn't understand a damn about data science because one data scientist is not a data science team. Yeah. So if I summarize, don't strive for perfection, just double down on things you know that will give you a competitive advantage. So for you, the competitive advantage was your social sciences background, right? So you already had some experience with, I think you mentioned quite a few things like election outcome, modeling Ebola, finding the district in Rotterdam with stabbing, right? For example, yes. Like I remember we found some really big issues in a model when we were predicting burnouts. And we had to interview a ton of people for that to, to check if our findings for our biggest predictors of burnouts were actually valid. And everyone was like, how the hell do we interview people? And I'm like, oh, I, I know I studied this and I interviewed a ton of people. They were mainly criminals. But as it turns out, interviewing people without bars in between is basically the same, just slightly more scary. More scary. Which was, again, a thing that I happened to know that made me a valuable addition to the team as, you know, a greenie. <laughs> okay. So I came across your post on LinkedIn. and. I reached out to you multiple times, inviting you for the podcast. And then I saw this post and I thought, okay, this is what I want to talk to Marianne about. And the post was how to hack your career. And this is actually the, the name of the event we have. And so first you wrote how to hack your career. And then the answer was do the opposite of what people tell you. So can you tell us more about this post that you made and what do you exactly mean by that? And maybe you can give also some examples. I think uh, my post started or ended with the quote, why try to fit in when you were born to stand out? And as far as career advice goes, and this is more than just data science, this is also if you're, I don't know, you're a florist or you're into accounting, okay, maybe not accounting, but you get what I mean. Everyone wants to make you fit in. It is natural behavior of us uh, upright monkeys to do the same as the rest does. But if you want to get that job or that assignment or that project or want to excel, if you want to stand out, then why the hell would you do the same thing as the rest? Oh, let, let me guess. You're going to try to do the same thing as the rest who stand out. That means you're still mimicking other people. I started out the whole LinkedIn game a few years ago trying to do whatever all the popular people were doing. More than half of it really didn't work. Because I wasn't doing anything authentic. I wasn't doing anything me. I was just mimicking some other monkeys rather than, than even other monkeys. Now, this goes for your... I'm pretty sure there's a lot of students here listening on, in on this in addition to data scientists. If you're in a team and everyone delegates tasks because you know we have hierarchies and we have top-down management and everyone shits down... I learned that rather than waiting passively to get your assignment uh, and your tasks, it really helps you and them to be proactive in that. If you are the first 
in the room to say, no, I'll do this. You pick up the task first. You get to choose which task you get to do, so not the sucky ones, so that helps you. Secondly, you're standing out. You're the one they'll go to next time because you were proactive. And that is scary, especially the very first time when you are fresh out of college in the work floor. But it gets easier the more you do it. And I have a story about my hair. I think you mentioned it previously because I am known as the guy with you know beautiful hair uh, on LinkedIn as well. But one day I, I had to call the boss. I'm not going to mention names, but I had to call the boss of the company I work for in the Netherlands. It was an escalation. It was an important thing. And his phone number was just in the system. But you better have a damn good reason to call him because he'll pick up. And I said, hi, this is Marijn Marcus speaking. And he said, who? And I'm like, oh. Then I said, the long-haired guy who talks AI. And he said, oh, you. I was a gone. And that's when I realized that my long hair is my trademark. It has nothing to do with data science AI, but it makes me stand out. Now, that doesn't mean y'all need to grow out your hair, but it does mean you can own and should rock the things that make you unique rather than just trying to fit in because that never worked for me. It won't work for you either. You can spend a whole lot of time, money, effort on being just like everyone else, but I don't think that makes you happy. And I don't think that makes them happy unless they like really like matching ties or something like that. <laughs> and that goes for the rest of the, the LinkedIn post as well, I think. Yeah, but maybe about this delegate task and uh, instead your suggestion is be proactive first, uh, pick the task, which gives mm -hmm. you an opportunity to choose things. So it's like, okay, there is a meeting and then somebody says, okay, we need to do this thing. And for that thing, uh, let's say I imagine there is a senior data scientist who decomposes the task. Uh, the product manager says, we need to do this. And then senior data scientist starts saying, okay, for this, we need to do this, this and this. And you can say, ah, me, me, I want to do that, right? Like, how does it happen usually? This also relates to our previous topic of the perfect curriculum, because practice is better than any okay. amount of training. And because I was proactive back in the day in my, in my first few projects about, okay, sure, I'll do that. Then maybe you can do that. A half a year later, they, I was being asked about, so what management skills do you have? And I realized oh, hell, I was basically doing the Scrum Master thing over there mm -hmm. at some point. Because everything is a learning opportunity, working in teams as well. And this is in part about being proactive. It's also about picking up opportunities to learn, like managing teams, like distributing uh, tasks, like being a product owner, being the, the go-to person for, for a specific topic. And especially for the young people, or also the old people in the field, you want to keep learning. If you don't want to keep learning, then why the hell are you in this field that keeps changing so much from year to year? And every new project that I do, I see as an opportunity to, to do something I haven't done yet. That's always scary at first. It gets less scary the more you do it. But it's a waste of you if you don't grab that opportunity to learn because if you're not learning then why are you doing it just for the money then you should quit your job and become an accountant they'll all be automated away in 20 years i'm pretty sure don't be an accountant but yeah some accountants are very difficult to automate i think anyways so we 
already talked about everyone delegates task. Then you also mentioned being proactive, right? Uh, what was next on the on the list? Oh, to give a terrible example, a lot of projects, especially in data science AI, focus on forecasting because people want to know the future. Let's be honest. But to know the future, you need to know the past, and that's why at first with feature engineering, you're basically usually researching what happened in the past and why. And some of the biggest causes of events in the past, I'm gonna use the burnout model again. I found a lot of people were having burnouts because of a few specific managers, because you don't quit your job, quit your manager. So we found some of the biggest predictors were a few set individuals. And I announced that people said, no, no, you shouldn't mention that. You shouldn't mention it. I'm like, I should mention that because if we're going to try to predict who gets the burnout next, we need to explain how the model works. Otherwise, they won't trust it. They won't use it. Explainable AI is actually just all about regression and decision trees and explaining how your model works and modeling the past. Again, I happen to have studied that stuff. To me, it was new that you can turn the model around and predict the future. But everyone told me not to mention that because then I was presenting to management that those four managers were actually causing a lot of attrition and a lot of burnouts. Those managers were in the crowd. So I got my ass kicked on that project. It all blew up in my face. But the rest of management was listening because I was the only one. Upper management loved it. Middle management hated it because I, I made everyone laugh at them, pulled down their, down their pants. But because I mentioned that, later on, upper management actually acted upon those insights because I said what no anybody else dared to say. Now, there is a high chance of being the messenger that gets shot in data science because you're the first to stumble upon bias, discrimination, a whole kind, lot of stuff. You know, the Amazon recruitment case where humans are actually, I think, discriminating, but then they trained an algorithm to recruit people, found it, grabbed only white males. Then they called the algorithm evil, and they went back to human recruiting, which is probably just as biased, but it's not expressed in data, so it's okay. We encounter a ton of this stuff, which is fun to me. This is why the field is fun to me. But it's also why the field is so valuable. So if you don't say this stuff, you're not doing your job right. You should say it in a careful way, like, no, I anonymized. That, that's what I did a few months ago, analyzing a large company, which parts of the organization had pay gaps, like gender pay gaps, that kind of stuff. I didn't mention anyone by name. I just gave them the hashes of, oh, yeah, I found out that these bastards are the most uh, sexist in, in pay gaps. Okay. Oh, that's so bad. That's, yeah, that's, that's terrible. Who is it? Well, I don't know because it's all anonymized. But here is the hashing list so you can look it up. And then they looked it up and they got angry at them. So then it wasn't me, the messenger, that got shot. So, you know, you, you get better at telling this stuff in a way that doesn't kill you. But it is so valuable and so important to mention this stuff because working in a data-driven way is still new to so many companies, so many organizations, and it's a fun part. And it would be a waste not to. Same as it's a waste to keep your head down. Yeah. So I have a list, actually. I have a post in front of me. Okay. So one of the things you have there is instead of getting told not to ask questions, ask anyway. Was it something you already covered or not? 
Well, I was told not to question why everyone at certain managers were leaving and having burnout. So <laughs> you should. And yeah, the next one or one of the next ones. Be advised by senior with 20 years of experience. Instead, talk back and advise the senior instead. Do you have a story about that? Well, that, that's an easy one. That's just hierarchies, you know, and pyramid models of organizations where the older you are, the more you know. I think IT struggles with that real badly because yeah, there's also a ton of people who are woefully outdated in their knowledge. And a lot of them don't want to admit it. But a lot of them also like it when you teach them stuff. It doesn't mean they, they don't want to learn. But yeah, you also have legions of people who just nod and say, oh, yes, yes, sir, that, that's great. We should continue with this horrible legacy application idea. Yeah, landscape. Yeah, sure, sure. By all means, it's the safest. Then the entire damn thing burns down because it was all legacy. Don't tell people they're stupid. I learned that. I do that way too often. But give them an opportunity to learn. This is how I became friends with CTOs of multiple organizations. It was an accidental reply all mail, I'll admit this. I hope you're not listening. Where he said, yeah, uh, data science, AI, blah, blah. And I said, well, actually, no, you got that and that and that part wrong. It was a reply all mail. Oops. <laughs> but it did get me coffee with the guy in the end. So what did you talk about over the coffee? Well, we skipped, uh, slightly skimmed over, over the fact that he misunderstood some stuff. And then we just talked about what else uh, we were doing. Because a lot of people, let's be honest, we're, we're all nerds here. We're very much interested in the stuff people do. Oh, how did you do this? How did you do that? In intakes, I am barely ever mentioning what perfect curriculum I followed or what degrees and certifications I had. I mainly just talk about, oh, yeah, I encountered that problem before. Well, how did you deal with it? Well, the data quality sucked like this and that, and I fixed it like that and that. Okay, and, th and then what? Yeah, then I insulted the managers to their face. So I learned from that. And then, okay, you're telling stories. We all tell stories using data because stories and experience are so much more valuable than Pokemon batches. What is that? Never played Pokemon? Come on. I watched a cartoon, but not... Oh, man, you missed out. I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> like you, in Pokemon, the game, you collect badges, you collect uh, certifications. Like is it a card game or like a video game? It's a video game. Then never mind. I think the audience <laughs> will get it. Okay, maybe I'm too old for that. But I think yeah, it was like five, six years ago. People were obsessed with getting Pokemons on the street. It was like some virtual reality. It was game. like fifteen to twenty years ago. But let's not go there. Already oh, okay. feel old, old enough as is. <laughs> And uh, yeah, actually coming back to your advice about teaching them stuff instead of getting advice from more senior people. When I work with juniors, I am always like I'm admiring their enthusiasm. So they come with a fresh look. They're, they are very enthusiastic. They really want to learn. And I don't have that energy, right? So I'm in the company for, I don't know, well, almost four years, three and a half. And I don't have a fresh look. And this is very valuable for me when somebody comes to me and says, hey, like, what do you have here? Well, people might uh, may use different words. Some of them are, oh, they can say, okay, this is crap. Or maybe there are other ways of uh, telling this. But this is really great, like when people can tell me, hey, let's try this thing. And okay, this is what I did in my master thesis, let's say. This is a cool thing. How about trying that? And it's interaction, right? Like you learn from them and they learn from you. And that is how it should be. 
but we're so scared. I was so scared at the start because it's like talking to a professor. You don't dare to disagree with them. Well, it's exactly just like in academics, actually. The professor also likes it when you discuss stuff with them. <laughs> That's the science in data science. Come on, it's research, it's discussing, and it's trying to prove each other wrong. We just use a lot of data to do it. Was there anything else in that post? I think we covered pretty much everything, but I'm sure you have a couple of more stories. My, my favorite last one is the bite off more that you can chew than chew. Because otherwise, how the hell are you going to learn how much you can chew? I have a poster like that in my house somewhere with a wolf. It's great. So if I translate it to plain English, does it mean like, okay, take as many tasks as possible and then figure out that you can not handle them and then back off? Dare to pick up tasks and dare to try stuff. You will only find out what you're good at, what you like to do, two very different things, where the coffee is okay and where your limits are by trying stuff and seeking out those limits. You're not going to do that by calmly sitting in the corner and waiting for them to give you a VLOOKUP task. And this happens to a lot of data analysts as well. They get hired somewhere and go, yeah, you go do this thing in Excel or go do this very simplistic analysis. And the cool ones then go like, okay, well, I can do that. We can also run a time series model to automate that stuff. Because they don't know that. You have all the knowledge. They have the business intel, blah, blah. And you're here to teach them as much as they are there to teach you. One thing I know you for is that you always find these little projects, little pet projects that you do and then you tell the world about them. And these projects are so cool. Can you share a few ideas or a few projects you did first and then maybe some project ideas with the audience? And yeah, maybe not everyone knows you. So can you tell first about the projects you did? Something awesome. You probably have something right now, do you? Yeah, it's loading right now. So I'm going to show you my house, sort of. This is Home Assistant. It's run, running on a Raspberry Pi 4 in my closet. I can control my entire house through it. I'm sorry for those listening in because you can't see it. You see a dashboard on my phone with all my lights, my coffee uh, machine, my front door. The Christmas tree is offline, as you can see, because I kind of disconnected it. It's not Christmas time, right? Yeah, and I'm... If, give it a few more months. It's all smart LED lights. I'm like really proud of it. You can see it on LinkedIn. It's like my gas is obviously off right now and I'm, it's not going on for a few more months. Coffee machine, um, stereo, blah, blah, blah. Amount of COVID cases in the Netherlands, my balcony lights. More importantly, these are my plants. I added sensors to my plants to check their humidity, light, Temperature, the poopy icon on screen shows if, I, if they need fertilizer. I think this one definitely needs fertilizer, as well as a battery icon, because it's just sensors um, in the plants broadcasting over Bluetooth, and Raspberry Pi picks up those, writes to do a database, and this dashboard then picks up the latest numbers and actually gives me audio cues. My plants scream at me when the threshold of, oh, you need to water your plants is reached. And I remember being in a big conversation with a big agri firm. They were like, oh, well, man, what can you do with sensors and, and AI? And everyone was just talking out their ass about, oh, yeah, sensors, AI, IoT. And I just literally pulled this thing out of my pants 
and show them and they were convinced okay marine knows knows plant drones also this one is oh, you can't see this this one tracks the local police radio to show me where the stabbings are in my neighborhood also fire so i can go watch in case you know fun fires are happening near my house and uh yeah that's stuff i do at home but then and here here comes the important parts everyone i'm working and it turns out this is valuable experience in the same way that i was asked hey what do you know about social media analysis and i just start talking about papers i wrote during my studies in 2013, yes, I know, it's a long time ago, when I was scraping Twitter to research the refugee uh, crisis discourse. And that counts as valuable work experience as well, in the same way hobby projects do. So please, youngsters over there, don't think you have no work experience because ju you just came out of university, because all your internships, your thesis, your hobby projects, the lead lights you glue to your piano, because I know I do, they count too. Use it. What did happen to your plants that you had to to do the system to water them? Did they just die one day and then you thought, okay, how can I make sure that they don't die again? Basically, because some were overwatered, others were underwatered, because they all have different thresholds. And I know ah, right. on the back end, it knows what the type of plant is and what the threshold is. So they also scream at me if I overwatered them. But believe me, that occurs less often. It's a rare event. So you have some sensors in each uh, plant, right? Yeah. So these sensors send data over Bluetooth to Raspberry Pi in your closet, right? Yeah, the Raspberry Pi stores it because they scream their new data, refresh it every minute. It stores the latest values and I can connect to that and trigger events happen if, if thresholds are reached. I get a question in the audience. Are you not worried about cyber attacks? I'm not worried about them cyber attacking my plants because the sensors only send data. They can't kill my plants through it. And the rest of it all runs Zigbee. So it's all localized. It's not Wi-Fi. It's not Bluetooth. And it all runs through Iceland. So I'm pretty secure on that end. Like, really, if you're building IoT, go with Zigbee. Way safer. That's a long trip, like, from the plant to Iceland and then to your computer. All the internet connections, like the ones I just showed, goes through Iceland, yes. Okay. Through a VPN. Uh, somebody asked, does my cat complain? Of course the cat complains. Cat complains about everything, mainly food, which is the one thing I haven't automated yet. <laughs> yeah, next project, right? Don't tell her. Yeah, so what about red lights? So you said you put some red lights on your piano? Oh, no, I'm still working on that. I put smart LED lights on my piano. Now I'm working on the microphone that still isn't running, so that when I play, the lights move based on the, the tune and rhythm. Yeah, I imagine somebody might be, well, it's a great project, it's an amusing project, but somebody might be thinking, okay, this is fun, but this is not serious. How can I talk about this to a potential employer? Oh, well, easy example. I soldered some wires to my uh, coffee machine so I can remote control it, so I don't have to walk over every time. But as it turns out, as I can now monitor my coffee use through the smart plug that measures the, the power usage and me pushing the button, I write that away to a database. And then suddenly, after two months, I had data to run a time series model on my coffee addiction. <laughs> That's cool. Suddenly, I have experience in time series modeling. I think the thing is currently offline. I'm so sorry. 
clearly my coffee consumption got messed up ever since we're going back to the office. So sad. Total trend breach. But suddenly I have stuff that I can show. And it counts more than the next guy. Oh, I, I did a training on that. Yeah, this is a question I get uh, quite often. So how do you get inspiration for these projects? Because I imagine it might be difficult. So let's say you are looking for a job because you're switching career or you just graduated or for whatever reason you want to have a portfolio, right? And then the question is, how do I build this portfolio? Okay, you can go to Kaggle, you can pick a competition, you can take part in this competition, then you can train a model, and then maybe if you're lucky, you get uh, in with a silver medal, and then you put in your CV. But so do the rest of the people there, right? Don't get me wrong. I yeah. highly respect the Kaggle grandmasters who can optimize the heck out of stuff. I can't do that to that extent. Yeah. But that brings me back to my original statement. Why fit in when you were born to stand out? Because... It takes so much effort to be the top 0.5% who beats all the rest in the same Kaggle competition. It's much easier to create your own competition like I did with my coffee machine. How did I get the idea? Because I'm lazy. Because I didn't want in between meetings to walk to my kitchen and back just to turn it on and then walk again one minute later. Mm -hmm. It is pure, unadulterated laziness. That is the main force behind automation in the modern world and makes for really good developers. Laziness that got me to build that stuff. Also sheer curiosity to see if it would work. Mm -hmm. But what about other, let's say, I quotes, more serious projects? Because you mentioned stabbing in Rotterdam and other things. And I know, I remember the story you told me the other day about helping farmers in India. If I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. I, I do some NGO projects because I interned way back in the day. Maybe can you tell us about that? So how do you find projects that are not related to the plants in your uh, flood? But, I think you know. this is a broader data science thing in that you shouldn't do just build what they ask, but you should build and do what organizations need. Many of you will join organizations and like, yeah, we need something with data. We need something with AI. But you're there to solve problems and help them make better decisions. There's, there's a reason why Google calls it chief decision scientist these days. If you're just building what they ask, which is usually Excel double plus stuff, you are not properly applying all the ideas, all the knowledge, all the skills you have, which brings me back to the be proactive part and suggest stuff. This is why they call me a consultant, because I come in there because of my expertise. But most data scientists are consultants within their own organization, because they're the guy or girl who knows that stuff that the rest doesn't. Yeah. So uh, can you tell us about this uh, Helping Farmers project? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, to get back to that, it's uh, two, three NGOs we're working with in India and Kenya. They aid smallholder farmers in developing countries help them achieve higher uh, yields because between 30 to 50 percent depending on your math of the food in the world is produced by smallholder farmers according to un statistics so if you want to help world hunger and holy moly we're going to get another world hunger crisis this summer you need to help the smallholder farmers produce more so we give them advice on how to achieve better yields 
what their yield will be end of season, also how they can apply crop rotation, planting what would actually give them the highest earning and stuff. We use weather, satellite uh, imagery, all kinds of feeds for that. I'm hopefully going to India in two months to help out over there to speak to locals, to interview them, to figure out what they use, what they don't use. Because here we have a part of the ask, like, what is my yield going to be end of season? I would like a forecast. But the optimization part, they are not asking for, but we are going to provide that anyway. Because if we're building, building a prediction model, we will see what are the biggest predictors for you. And we can advise you on that. We can talk to you about that. Some of those predictors, they can't change. Like you live in this part of the West Bengal region. It's that fertile over there. So that's the yield you're going to get. Some other things like what they plant, when they plant it, how they plant it. I am by no means a, a farming expert. I have sensors to keep my own plants alive. But this is stuff that they do not ask, but that is of immense value to them when you give it to them. And that, again, is data science, and also my niche in the fuel, I guess. Everyone screams about explainable AI, but I think there's a very small threshold between explainable AI and just using statistics and models to explain what the hell is happening to help people make better decisions. And I do that for my job. I do that at a lot of Dutch and international organizations. And I also want to help smallholder farmers in God knows where, because it's the same damn thing, just different data and like 15 different ways of spelling cow dung. Yeah, and if you are not an expert in farming or whatever other domain, whatever other field, and there are some things that experts, domain experts, people who are, let's say, your customers, they don't ask for something. How do you know that they are going to need this if you are not an expert in that yourself? So how do you arrive at Alexi, this refers to our earlier topic. You don't need to know everything. Because mm -hmm. I'm part of a team. I'm, I'm, I'm bragging about it, but I'm just one of uh, five glorious bastards who work on this project. And we all have different skills. That, that, that one knows much more about farming. That one can make PowerPoints I never could. And it's collaborating with people who know a lot of stuff that you don't know that gives you an opportunity to learn. If you're stuck in uni, like I was stuck in uni, surrounded with people who know the same stuff, you will feel, well, very inadequate because they know more about your specific field. But here I'm working with a guy who actually was a farmer years ago. A lot of tractor jokes, I swear. But he can advise me and us on that stuff in ways I can't. So I don't need stress out over knowing everything. Because we work in a team for that. I just stress out over knowing the things I should know. And believe me, that's stress enough. Yeah. I was thinking you would say something about, you know, you need to ask questions and not grill experts, but ask them a lot of questions. Try to really understand the domain. But having a domain expert in a team, I think it's easier, right? Of course, you should ask all the questions because people explain the problem, but they usually don't explain the problem behind the problem. Mm -hmm. get what I mean. So this guy with tractor jokes and farming experience, this is why he got the job? Because of his farming experience? Yeah, he's got quite a lot of uh, other skills as well. But it does make him stand out. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what you want. You can stand out with your hair, or you can stand out with having experience and knowledge that nobody else does. 
And again, my team, I have this guy who, who studied aerospace, God knows what, but he knows everything about Boeings. And it's really interesting during lunch to hear everything about airplanes. But as soon as we're talking, I don't know, logistics, optimization, and it involves airplanes, he's the guy we go to because he knows airplanes. And other thing we talked about with you just a couple of days ago, and I, you mentioned already that there might be, again, a problem with famine and hunger in the next months, right? Oh, yeah. And I think it's related to war in Ukraine, right? And this is something we talked about recently. And one of the things you mentioned is that as a data scientist, you can do what you called open source intelligence. Oh, yeah. Right. Maybe can you talk about that a bit and about also the hunger? Sure. So let me start out. But open source intelligence, also known as OSINT, is the field of grabbing social media data, stuff that's open, that, that's out there and using it as valuable data to do stuff. I was already doing that 10 years ago, really, when I was studying to grab Twitter data to predict which or analyze which parts of the Netherlands would and wouldn't be open to receiving uh, refugees. And the war in Ukraine is the first modern information war on Earth. It is incredibly interesting what we're seeing over there. History is being written. I'll skip all the doom scrolling because I just spent three months just doom scrolling. But just yesterday, did you see the deep fake of President Zelensky being posted? You, you shared it. I try yeah, not I, to spend uh, too much time on... Uh... That's a smart move. That's a very smart move. But this is the first time in history that people use deep fakes to impersonate a president to spread fake news. And it's not just Putin dancing and singing uh, ABBA. No, it's actually... A, a serious misinformation campaign based on machine learning techniques. Now, back to OSINT. First few days, Ukraine was using Intel, GPS intel based on Russian soldiers who took their phones along to figure out where the soldiers are and to, you know, send drones and bombs after them, which is terrifying and horrifying because this is war and I condone the violence, that kind of stuff. But simultaneously, it is so interesting to see two modern states with modern technology at war. We've never seen that before. Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Palestine, it's, it's all horrifying what's happening over there. Don't get me wrong. And I, I hope we get more sympathy for those people and their plight thanks to Ukraine. But the images we got from there was usually night vision goggles of people really zoomed out with turbans, so to say. Now we have high-quality imagery hitting the internet 24-7, and we have a huge social media response to that. We also have people going on Tinder, like I was last week. I was Ivanka, and I was using a GPS spoof to pretend to be on the Ukraine border, and I was matching with people in Russian uniforms, and we were all just reporting our location and the amount of miles, the distance to, to that person we matched with, because somebody else also matched with Ivan, but was over there. And that way you can triangulate that the Russian soldier who you are tindering with on which part of the Russian-Ukraine border, because that's where they're stationed, which part they are. And thus we can, on scale, analyze where the reinforcements are on the border. And the Ukraine government actually uses this information. It's 
absolutely crazy. And I haven't even started about anonymous and using DDoS attacks to take down uh, Russian news, for one, which was also really interesting because then Russia as a country started blocking foreign IP addresses. So you couldn't do DDoS attacks like that anymore. And yet a few hours later, the DDoS attacks continued because they were coming from within Russia itself. And this is all open information that we're using for very violent purposes, but it's never happened before. And it makes our field as data scientists relevant in ways that it has never before been relevant. And I I think that will only increase in the future. If somebody wants to help with these efforts, with OSINT and uh, other things, how can they do this? Google is your best friend because there's so many task forces. Uh, You have Anonymous, obviously. People on Reddit, uh, unfortunately, especially Reddit, compiling lists. The whole Tinder thing is a Reddit thing, I'll admit this. (laughs) Just gathering data. There's tons of open maps where we aggregate Twitter reports and sightings of, oh, hey, here, here bombs are falling. Oh, we saw tanks driving over there. I help out sometimes with that as well in the evening. Uh, of just pinpointing those tweets, because there's no GPS, because the Ukraine government asked the population, please turn off your GPS, because that's that's a way to target you. But these reports are coming in, and we're mapping those, pinpointing them on maps, to see movement of troops. And also, all the war crimes being reported, that's going straight to The Hague. They're going to use this data that we collect on Tinder and Twitter these days. They're going to use that in court in x months time that's big that's all data and that's all data that's out there that we can use and it's it's free for the picking really to make matters worse we knew basically knew this was coming for half a year because for half a year people have been tracking the fact that there were tons of military trains everywhere in russia going towards the border that was mapped that data was also present nobody wanted to believe it would happen I didn't want to believe it would happen either. I have friends on both sides, for the record, and fuck, I pray for their safety. But historically, this is unique. Mm-hmm. Never before. And that brings me to the last part, and that's the, the famine, because that's why I'm also working on a few projects for that. Did you know that the Ukraine flag, the blue and the yellow, is actually grain? Mm-hmm. It's the blue is the blue sky, and the yellow, that's this golden grain, because it's the breadbasket of the world. So we're going to see huge... Well, decreases in grain produce over the next uh, year, which will lead to higher grain prices, but also higher meat prices worldwide, because a lot of that grain is actually used to feed animals. No, not only that, but that's one of the parts, right? Then also energy and like many other things. Oh, yeah. A lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Mike is asking, should data experts learn soft skills like people skills, communication, networking, drinking, as well as hard skills to go further and faster? Oh, it goes both ways. Whatever makes you uh, unique, I don't mean you should paint your hair purple, by the way, but whatever makes you stand out and gives you an edge works. Even if it's being the one who can also talk to the people, or the one who is not afraid to stand on stage. I did opera as a kid. That is why I can talk about it like this. I'm pretty sure. Because when you sing Italian for 500 people in pants that are way too tight, 
you can tell 500 people anything, I believe. Is there a video? Yeah, Don Giovanni. But the, the point here is, doesn't mean it all has to be social skills. You can also excel because, I don't know, uh, it's all in Azure and then this client suddenly wants AWS. You're the only one who also worked with AWS. That works too. Just don't be the same as everyone else. Would you want to be? I know a guy who did esports for a few years. And thanks to that, he, he excelled at, at his project because they were mining, I don't know, League of Legends or some shit data. And he happened to have played it in the past. So he was like the expert. <laughs> But usually when you look at job postings, there is a certain profile they require. And this is like a description of an average data scientist with three to five years of experience. And this is who the company want usually. Right. Yeah, th those are means and averages and stuff. And we as data people should know how horrible averages and means are. You know, the average person has one boob and half a wiener. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. Well, maybe to summarize, to, a way to stand out is uh, just yeah, take what you know and double down on that, right? I think this is something you said at the beginning. And let me check if we have other questions in live chat do you see anything so there was a comment about oh yeah i the tinder sample got yeah yeah i'm sorry ivanka was like a really bad name i had to come up with something <laughs> yeah it's not a typical name uh, i think at least uh, not in russia in ukraine no i was using auto translate and pretending to be uh, an exchange student didn't really work that well <laughs> I, I think even though my dad never gave me much advice in the world of data, because he really doesn't get it, he did give me dating advice, which is don't pretend to be someone you're not. And career-wise, it's exactly the same. Don't pretend to be someone you're not. At least it's not in the long term, because that doesn't help you, and that doesn't help him, her, or your clients, or your boss. I don't know. Yeah, but also your father gave you... Uh... If I'm not wrong, your father told you that social sciences is not really like a way to go, right? You don't get a job with that. Turns out you do. Because his data, his experiences of the past told him that. Yeah, right. Well, we still have time for one more question maybe. And this is something I wanted to ask you. So one question about LinkedIn. I see that you're pretty active there. Yeah. And... You have quite a few followers. So what is your growth strategy there? Is it about posting cats and memes or? LinkedIn is an algorithm, same as any other. It's the nearest neighbor style matching algorithm, I believe. You can optimize that. Open secret, I think you should post on Thursdays and Tuesdays between eight and nine in the morning, your time. Because there's an optimal time there to post. There's an optimal amount of hashtags and people uh, to tag. In your post, the type of material you post, you trend a lot less if it's animated uh, video. If it's without a picture, it's circulated even more. There is a ton of stuff you can do to optimize your post to get a bigger reach. I may or may not have done the same for dating apps in the past, but now this scratches my itch, you know? And if you optimize it, like I could do a whole lecture on how to optimize uh, LinkedIn, you will get a bigger reach. And that is fun in itself. I am basically trying different things. And for the first year or so, it was terrible because I was just trying to reverse engineer what works and what doesn't work. And for me, that is try to post on weekdays 
between eight and nine in the morning because your post will basically circulate for one hour. And after that, if it doesn't reach an, a required amount of likes or comments, it will stop trending. Mm-hmm. Comments are much stronger than likes. If you want to support a post, comment because LinkedIn is a comment driven algorithm, not a like driven algorithm. Reaches the threshold of amount of attention, then it will circulate for like 12 hours. And this is why I need to post early in the work days because then you will get, have the morning everyone checks their phone while they're uh, on the loo or having a coffee meaning you optimize your odds of getting liked in that first crucial hour. And then you'll also uh, be trending over lunch and dinner. If you post three at night, very few people are going to like it unless you have a lot of Australian friends. Mm -hmm. And then there's the content thing, which is like there's three types of posts on LinkedIn, which is bragging, information, and humor. And I remember a big marketing manager from a, a company I shall not mention, going like, hey, Marijn posted any memes recently, even though I trend harder than, than his entire marketing department. <laughs> because most people and organizations just post bragging stuff. Like, oh, yeah, I have this certification or I got this promotion. And posting about your promotions is great. That's good. But people like that because they know you. They don't care about the information or the humor in there. But if you want to post every week, every month, or every day, You can't just brag about yourself unless you're like Apple and you only post brags, but nobody likes that. Only people from the same organization like your shit and nobody else does. But if you post information that's actually informing to people with humor, you can post about that every day. And that's basically what I do. I almost, okay, sometimes I brag, but I try not to post bragging posts, but just information about my field, about my experiences, about things I learned, about the things I did wrong, especially, very funny usually, humor about me screwing up, like with the managers and and burnouts, like I mentioned just now. That makes for great posting material, and I have that every week. So if I inform people, people like that, because bragging they will only like if they know you or your organization. But If it's informing and relevant to your field, people outside your organization and outside of your field of connections will also like it. I have more followers, and you can analyze this. I have more people liking my stuff from Accenture and KPMG than from my own damn company. Are you listening to me, Cap Gemini? Like my shit more. But that does mean it is a value to them. Don't try to brag about yourself or be funny about yourself. Give them something that informs that they can use. And if you just keep sending information, giving information, you will start getting information back. Same as talking with the seniors. I remember one of your posts, like it was a swamp and there was a data engineer and data scientist. I think it was wombats or what was the animals? Oh, no, those were capybaras. I have to be very specific on that. Those were capybaras with the the tiny uh, one, the data scientist and the engineer below it i have to point out that at least half of the memes i post are my own the other half might be from 4chan okay i think that we should be wrapping up so the best way to find you linkedin right am i right hell yeah okay then i guess that's it for today so thanks a lot for joining us today for telling us all these awesome stories for telling us how to hack a data career and Yeah, thanks also everyone for being active, for asking questions, for watching us. And everyone, enjoy your weekend. Take care, everyone. Let's stay in touch and let's stay safe.
Yeah. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you.